This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, we'll be revisiting the Zapatistas in southern Mexico and wading into the debate over immigration along the U.S.-Mexico border, something the U.S. Congress debated this week. But first, the U.S. Congress and its views on diplomacy with Cuba. Gabriela Canchola is here with that story and more in our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Members of the U.S. Congress threw some sharp questions at diplomats who had just returned from Havana in negotiations with Cuba's government. Late last year, U.S. President Barack Obama announced historic negotiations with Cuba to resume normal relations, but this week, conservatives had their turn to criticize Obama during a series of hearings in the U.S. Congress. Representative Ed Royce, a Republican from California, said the U.S. has already ceded negotiating ground to the Cubans for not demanding more in the area of human rights and other concerns. Had the White House consulted more widely, it may have heard that Havana is facing the threats of losing Venezuelan oil subsidies and mounting public pressure for basic reforms within the country. And this could have been used to leverage meaningful political concessions on human rights in Cuba by that regime. Various members of Congress have asked the Cuban government to allow U.S. congressional delegations to visit the island during the coming months during these diplomatic talks. This week, the Cuban government delayed any further visits by members of the U.S. Congress until April or later. Perhaps following the footsteps of the historic diplomatic moves between the U.S. and Cuba, President Nicolás Maduro of Venezuela made a plea this week for the U.S. to open negotiations to better relations with his country. Maduro asked Ernesto Samper, the president of the multinational group called UNASUR, to mediate those diplomatic negotiations. Maduro's overture to the U.S. came a few days after the Obama administration set new visa restrictions against various members of the Venezuelan government for human rights violations and corruption. Maduro's plea for diplomacy also comes just a few days after he accused U.S. Vice President Joe Biden of trying to organize a coup to bring down his government. Biden and Maduro met briefly in Brazil last month with Maduro asking the U.S. for more respect in the diplomatic arena. The mysterious death of Special Prosecutor Alberto Nisman in Argentina has prosecutors hunting for spies and other clues. Investigators tried unsuccessfully this week to find Antonio Stiuso, the former head of counterintelligence for Argentina's intelligence secretariat. Argentina's president, Cristina Fernández de Kirchner, fired Stiuso last fall. She has accused him of misleading Nisman in his investigation. Nisman was investigating ties between Iran and the bombing of a Jewish community center in Argentina in the mid-1990s. Stioso's lawyer says he's not sure if his client is even still in the country. Investigators confirmed this week they had found documents in Nisman's apartment that showed he was prepared to formally charge President Fernandez with covering up Iran's involvement in the bombing. Members of the Argentine government had said the Argentine media were lying and exaggerating about the documents, but they have since had to backtrack on those objections. 
Environmental groups in the U.S. are blaming the decline of the monarch butterfly on U.S. chemical company Monsanto. The butterflies are famous for migrating annually between parts of Canada and the U.S. to a nature preserve about 60 miles west of Mexico City. The World Wildlife Fund and the Mexican government released results of a butterfly census recently. That census said numbers were up, but environmentalists estimate it is still the second smallest group of butterflies in the past generation. Environmental groups blame Monsanto's Roundup weed killer for killing milkweed, an essential food for monarch butterflies. For Latin Pulse, this is Gabriela Canchola. Thanks, Gabriela. Our shout-out this week goes to our listeners in Jersey City, New Jersey, where we had more listeners than any other spot on the globe. Thanks for tuning us in online. And now we turn our focus a bit further south to Washington, D.C., where this week the U.S. Senate debated rolling back President Obama's executive orders on U.S. immigration. Last fall, Obama said he would shield about 5 million unauthorized immigrants from deportation. Although the move received accolades from the Latino community and governments in Latin America, conservatives condemned it, and a new conservative Congress moved quickly against it this year. This week, Republicans in the U.S. Senate tried to advance a measure sent from the House of Representatives to roll back those orders, and in a legislative move, conservatives tied rollback to funding for the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, which is set to run out at the end of the month. Democrat Dick Durbin of Illinois urged senators to stand firm against the move. Mr. President, we are a nation of immigrants. Immigrants have come to this country and made it what it is today. We should never forget that. This is the latest generation of immigrants who want to give back to America and make us a stronger nation. Why the Republicans are opposed to giving them that opportunity, I cannot understand. Democrats blocked three votes on the Republican immigration measure this week. We turn to Susan Miller at Georgetown University for her analysis of the immigration debate in Congress and the chances for resolution in the remaining years of the Obama presidency. Miller is the director of the Institute for the Study of International Migration and the author of several books. Her latest is International Migration, Evolving Trends from the Early 20th Century to the Present. Here are excerpts from our discussion recorded via Skype from Washington, D.C. But I think the first thing that the Republicans need to do um, is to come to grips with each other. Um, there isn't a single Republican view of immigration. Um, there are people who come out of more of a um, market-based economy focus who are actually quite comfortable with large and high levels of immigration. Um, and there are others that are, are very concerned about uh, both the fact that a, a segment of the, popula- of the population of immigrants are here illegally, um, but also are, are worried, frankly, about what immigration means for the social fabric of the country. Um, they're uncomfortable with immigration for that reason. Um, And that's a major tension within the Republican Party. Um, And so part of the reason that the uh, Republican House hasn't moved on immigration reform in the past is that there is no agreement, even amongst themselves, on what the major contours of action should be. Um, And that's part of the reason why, although we got to a bipartisan bill, Um, in the Senate in the last Congress, the House was unable to act on what other Republicans found to be perfectly acceptable 
policies. We saw Senator Rubio in that particular case be one of the people who brokered that bipartisan agreement in the Senate. Now that he's considering running for president, some people are saying he may even back away from that um, particular view. So we're also seeing a shift in what would have been support during the last Congress now be something different. Yes, it, I mean I think that a lot of Republicans, as well as Democrats, are re-examining um, what they feel about immigration, uh, partly because of the changes in the power structures and who has control over uh, which house, um, but also because of the 2016 election coming up. Um, usually, we've had immigration reform passed in the off-election cycle um, and not when a presidential election is is um, upon us. Um, so I think that that's going to make it even harder uh, for both parties to come to any agreement. Uh, they're worried about their what their own core constituencies believe about immigration. Um, and also, I think many are, are just very confused about what are the best policies today. You have said that this issue is fairly emotional. Um, we cast ourselves as a nation of immigrants, but yet there has been this emotion for a long time historically, has there not? Yes, of course. We um, have always been ambivalent about immigration. Um, we see the past with rose-colored glasses. Um, our own ancestors, whether they're five years ago or whether they're uh, 400 years ago were the good immigrants. They were the people who came and built the country and made it what it is today. Um, but at each stage that those immigrants were coming in, there were people who were worried that they would not integrate, that they would not become Americans in the vision that that generation had. Um, and so there was discrimination against um, German immigrants, um, you know, no less a figure than Benjamin Franklin in the 1750s wrote that the Germans would never become good Englishmen. Of, of course, they didn't become Englishmen. They became Americans after the, uh, with the revolution, American Revolution. Um, but there was discrimination against the Irish, um, the um, Southern and Eastern Europeans who came um, at the turn of the 19th to 20th centuries were described as uh, being a different race, unable to assimilate into the white Protestant um, country to which they were coming, um, and yet we know that they assimilated quite well. Um, so there have always been concerns about immigrants, um, but on the same same way, we're all quite proud of our own um, immigrant origins. And it's that tension which makes it very, very difficult to pass immigration reform. Um, people are always you know, highly um, emotional in the way in which they look at the issues. Uh, and they also are judging current immigration against a standard that in a way never existed. And that makes it tough for today's policymakers to find the right balance um, in terms of what kind of reforms are needed. So you're saying that there are some myths attached to immigration? Oh, sure. Um, I mean, we have a tendency to think that if we're a nation of, of immigrants, we have always been very positive about immigration. Um, and that's not true. Um, I've written elsewhere um, in 
book called A Nation of Immigrants, that we actually, in the colonial period, had three models of immigration. Um, the first in Virginia, where um, the immigration was welcomed, the immigrants were admitted, um, but often with very few rights. I mean, after all, the importation of African slaves was a form of immigration. It was just one where the people who came had no rights and no ability to um, fully integrate into the country. Um, Massachusetts was the second model in which we admitted people who shared the same theology, later on it was the ideology of the country, um, but we were very worried about people with different ideologies. So we had the Red Scares um, in the 1920s. And you know, in current periods, we're worried you know, for some very good reasons, but some also, I think, overblown reasons um, about terrorists coming into the country. Um, and it was really only in Pennsylvania that we had a model in the colonial period which accepted immigrants to come in and build a new nation and become full members. There was religious toleration. Um, there was a, an easy route to citizenship um, for people who came into mostly the middle colonies, but Pennsylvania probably had the best record in that area. Um, but that model is also full of um, dangers and concerns for people because whenever there's a perception that the new immigrants aren't assimilating, there can be a tremendous backlash against all immigration. Um, and we have seen that repeatedly in U.S. history. And I'm guessing that that's why we see that backlash now when we have so many Mexican immigrants who have come across and, and others from Central America, Latin America. The language assimilation doesn't seem to be happening as quickly as maybe some of these other times. Right, but again, comparing today with other times, we actually probably have a little bit faster language assimilation than we did previously. Um, we forget that there were you know, five or six states in the Midwest in the 19th century that had German-only schools because the so many of the residents were from Germany or from German-speaking countries, um, and they weren't picking up the lang English language fast enough to be able to study. So we, and it wasn't bilingual education; it was actually monolingual education in German. It wasn't until World War One, when we declared war on Germany, that those schools really ended. New issues they play out in different ways. Um, if I'm worried about anything about current immigration, um, it's that we are admitting people who have very low levels of education in, from their home countries. Um, and our public school system um, is not, in many cases, able to really begin to help this the kids or the parents to learn English and gain skills. Um, and we know from a lot of research that parental educational level has a tremendous influence on how much education children will have. Um, and so it is worrying that in our information age economy that the second generation of mostly the Latino immigrants, um, will not get the full education that they need to compete. Um, but that's something we can do something about, and improvements in our public education system is going to help everyone, not just the immigrants.
immigrants, they'll benefit particularly from a better educational system. Arguably, the Obama administration has tried to look at that particular group, the younger group, as the group to protect the most in its particular policies and, in, and has tried through executive action to protect uh, more or less about 5 million people of the 12 million uh, undocumented in the country from uh, trying to go through deportation. But yet also the Obama administration has, I guess, the record for the most deportations of any president in history. So we, we see this dichotomy even within the Obama administration's policies. Well, I think what the Obama administration has tried to do is something long overdue, and that's set priorities um, in terms of our enforcement and in terms of the ways in which we think about who should be here legally and who shouldn't. Um, and so it has had a record of, of you know, record-breaking uh, removals, um, but it has for the most part tried to emphasize removals of people who've committed crimes um, and as a result have um, you know, lost their ability to argue for remaining in the country. Um, but on the other hand, in looking at the children, um, you know, the administration has said that it doesn't, it's unlikely that these kids will be removed. Um, and the worst thing for the country, and I fully agree with this, is for them to be an underclass um, without options for being able to move up the economic ladder to fully participate in the life of the country. Um, and so the, it, it, these are two sides of the same coin. Um, the coin saying we have to have priorities with regard to who stays, who is deported, um, and there is a segment of the population who should be deported, and, and the Obama administration has taken great efforts to make that system work. Thank you so much. Our guest today, Professor Susan Martin of Georgetown University, the director of the Institute for the Study of International Migration, the author of several books, including her latest, International Migration, Evolving Trends from the Early 20th Century to the Present. Thank you for being on Latin Pulse today. Thank you for having me. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn, indignate, act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Photojournalist Giles Clark traveled to Chiapas in southern Mexico last year to provide an update on the Zapatista movement and their semi-autonomous communities of Zotzil, Zetzal, and Toholabal Maya. Clark works for Getty Images Reportage, and his compelling photo essay showed up in Business Insider last fall. We spoke to him via Skype from New York City, where he reflected on his essay and the Zapatistas. For your listeners who don't know what the Zapatistas are, they were a, a band of uh, indigenous Indians, um, a, a group of tribes who came together in the early 90s to uh, protest against the NAFTA, the, the uh, trade agreement that was made between Mexico and the U.S., which basically 
um, was going to undermine and continue the, the, the exploitation of these poor areas of Mexico. Um, and Zap the Zapatistas came together as a collective and uh, really fought and, and ran, ran as a very well-publicized uh, campaign in the in uh, in June, sorry, in January 1994. Um, so I was back there for the 20th anniversary of that that rebellion, um, and I was there because, for one, that I wanted to go back. And I, I was actually there in Mexico in 1994 on a different story. Uh, I was up in Mexico City and down in Belize, but I remember being there at the time in 1994 and seeing these sort of rough television images from various places I was and was you know was amazed that that this that this was happening um and it was at the time sort of the truce was brokered by a by by the church down there um and the zapatistas led by the very charismatic subcommandante marcos uh were indeed given autonomy uh, autonomy being that they were allowed to basically run their own area of the chiapas high mountains and uh they were uh, allowed to live as they 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 had decided they wanted to live. In other words, running their own education, schooling, uh, medical, transportation. They were to. They also said they wanted to take care of all their coffee and their very valuable amber in, amber production. So really, it was about uh, the Zapatistas defining themselves at that moment. And my journey back twenty years later was to see how that. Uh, how that had gone on, and how how you know how we how they were doing in in this new time of even more corporate aggression against them, as it is a very resource rich area. Do you feel that there's current corporate aggression against them, and what are the changes that you would say have happened in that area? Like in many of these areas, as in many of the areas that are, as, again, as I said, resource rich. Yeah, there's a, a constant corporate pressure especially from the the Mexican government down there who are being sort of pressured by the everybody from the, the coffee, the bananas, and the unknown resources, which are supposedly sort of um, underground. So we have, you know, there's possibly oil up there. There's all sorts of different reasons that the government wants to have their, their uh, companies in there. Anyway, I think I think the most important thing was that they that that the as far as the pressure goes now is that as as opposed to twenty years ago was that I think the Mexican government had come to the point. Well, look, we, we they've had their twenty years of of autonomy, and and we you know we still we still believe that this area should be run by Mexico. Although they they have really no plans to do much more than just take it from them. So that's kind of the the sentiment that I felt down there and um, and there is a lot of of aggression you know that's being pointed and a lot of these are from you know being being ge geographically located at this very sort of difficult border between you know you're just north of Guatemala and you're those mountains there and this there's a massive paramilitary presence that that sort of rings this whole area of Chiapas. Um, there's a massive influx of cocaine and arms shipment, sh shipping, smuggling going on. It's a tricky area. So, you know, there's the, the Zapatistas who have always uh, kept all of this kind of activity away from their land, 
are struggling with those those privately and some say government-run paramilitaries. Your photos reflect a, a more peaceful existence, but after you were there early last year, there were some violent clashes and, and one that took some lives and, and actually resulted in Subcomandante Marcos stepping away from his position, uh, uh, partially, I think, for claiming some responsibility. Subcomandante Marcos sort of fell away, as many in the Zapatista Council of Good Governance will tell you, is that you know, he's been very much a shadow figure and falling away from the leadership in the last six or seven years. Um, he, may, he may have tried to come back and, and uh, uh, implement some of his own changes, but that seems to be something that is still a little unknown as to what his role is exactly within the Zapatista movement down there. Um, the, the, the attack that, that I guess got the most uh, press happened uh, last year in, in May, uh, May 2014, and this is something that, that the Zapatistas get, often get targeted for, is that they're activists. Um, one particular teacher, Jose Solis Lopez, a teacher in one of the Zapatistas' little schools, Escuelita, where I was actually invited through, uh, he was murdered and 15 Zapatistas were, were injured in, a, in basically in a, in, a, in a violent ambush, armed ambush. Um, they also attacked the Mayan school and the local health clinic. They're all Zapatista run. So it's been apparently led to, it's been focused or the, the group that, that claimed responsibility or were blamed with responsibility as a, as a local, local revolutionary institutional party, PRI. Um, and these are all very nebulous paramilitaries, but they, they have links to the government and so... It's difficult to know where exactly it's coming from, but yes, to answer your question, there is a growing uh, resistance against the Zapatistas and a violent one. Your photos, as I said, reflect more of the day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. The, the one that struck me the most was uh, you're, you're in someone's kitchen. They're, they're, um, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, and that struck me because it, it's um, one that reflects, I think, very much the day-to-day uh, the wood cooking stoves, the the simple place where, where people dine for all their meals. As a photojournalist, you know, I, I often find myself in very difficult areas, troubled areas. Um, they are ultimately a very peaceful people. They 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 are they do have guns for self protection, but and they have a, a militia, the EZLN, which is which was formed for the rebellion and and continues to protect i guess the word is uh but um they are ultimately a self-sustaining and self-organized group of people who want to keep their their indigenous and cultural roots alive and i wanted to show that in my pictures just by being with them in very simple daily situations so and and you you'll notice that in all my pictures that they do cover themselves. Um, they, the adults particularly insist on always being photographed, covered up. And one of the reasons why they do this, and I thought... And it was, when you mean covered up, you mean with a, with a ski mask or a exactly. balaclava? The bandana, the bandana which many um, Zapatistas use. Um, 
Yeah, the Zapatistas say that we wear these masks in order to be seen, um, which is quite interesting because it, basically they, uh, they, they don't want to be seen as individuals fighting a cause. They, they want to be seen as a collective and an anonymous collective in a way fighting against this government oppression. So that's really why they've kept this, this ski mask tradition alive. Uh, it's very effective when they're on the streets and, ver- and very effective Thank you so much. Photojournalist Giles Clark of Getty Images Reportage joining us via Skype from New York, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. We want to thank one of our longtime listeners in Kansas for suggesting an update on the Zapatista movement. If you'd like to send us your suggestion or comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Flipboard. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Mini Mundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, production assistant Gabriela Conchola and producer Jim Singer. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2015 Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>